Okay, let's go with this to page 31 in the notes and let's go to 2 Corinthians and chapter number 1 in the Word of God. So if we do those two things, boy, great to see you here this morning. And uh, I trust that already your heart has been stirred as we focused on the, the I Am and Moses' servant and been encouraged with that. Now we're going to follow up here uh, by asking a question and trying to answer it. And that is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Now, I'm not asking you if you're schizophrenic because probably most of us actually spiritually are. We're spiritually schizophrenic. And uh, we're going to be looking at this because I believe it's a key truth in helping us understand some things. But let me just, before I get into it, say a couple of things. First of all, as uh, Pastor brought up one of the books out there, I know some of you have already visited the book tables. And I do want to encourage you uh, to pray about, Lord, is there a book out there that would uh, open truth to me in a way that would help me in my Christian life? And I have found that uh, really a good book is what we call, what you might call preaching in print. It is a book that drives you to the book. It's one of those books when you read it, you're thinking, wait, I've never thought of it quite that way. And you go back to the Bible and uh, perhaps it helps you understand something that perhaps you haven't fully understand before, understood before. And so uh, let me encourage you to pray about that. I remember, I don't know, probably 20 plus years ago, I was in a bookstore at Christmas time, right before Christmas break. I knew I was going to have some extra time. And I said, Lord, is there something here I'm supposed to read? I believe the Lord led me to Andrew Murray's Absolute Surrender. And that was definitely a turning point in my pilgrimage. God began to open my eyes to some things that were extremely helpful and continue to be. And then I found out later a little benefit that my grandmother that uh, Pastor Van Gilderen just talked about, that was her favorite book outside of the Bible, Andrew Murray's Absolute Surrender. That was a tremendous blessing just to hear that. So there may be a book out there that may be an encouragement. Let me encourage you just to pray about it. Lord, lead me to that, uh, that which would be a help to me. I know over the years God has used particular books just to confront me with truth and certainly there's been one recently that God has used to stir me about some things. And I want to just uh, present some of the things God's been just illuminating and perhaps I've kind of known. But he ever had truth, God begins to put the dots together. And you get a fuller understanding. You're thinking, wow, that is really neat how that all goes together. And uh, uh, I don't know about how, preachers, I'm not going to ask you to say amen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But how many have ever felt like 10 years ago you were an idiot? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Thinking, man alive, where did I, what was I missing? I got good news for you. Ten years from now, you're going to think you're an idiot right now. Okay, so uh, it's, I guess, called Christian growth. You know what it is? You're thinking, wow, why didn't I get a hold of that before? They say the most productive decade of your life is 60 to 70. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. See, that's why all you young guys, all you young bucks out there, you really are morons. Okay, but anyway, so, um, Yeah. Ah, but 60 to 70, most productive. How many are pumped about that? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, there you go. Most productive decade right there. And then second most productive decade, here it is, 70 to 80. 70 to 80. Wow. I'm not pumped about that one yet, but anybody out here pumped about that one? And third most productive decade, it's not 80 to 90, I'm sorry, but it is 50 to 60. 50 to 60. Okay, so all you young bucks out there, God's getting you ready for three really productive decades, okay? So when you hit that 50th birthday, you're ready to roll, okay? But anyway, so how many of you are under 50? Okay, so here it is. Wow, that's great. That is great. Ah, boy, that's, uh, that's a lot of millennials out there. Unbelievable. I'm surprised you're still here after those comments about Starbucks. I mean, after all, I mean, I thought the millennials were going to walk on the deal, man. I thought we were going to have a massive walkout, but you're still here. Unbelievable. You know, you know why they call it Starbucks? Because it's bucks. You know what I'm talking about? 
big bucks. Okay. And like I've teased about millennials, their mantra is, why pay less for a cup of coffee when you can pay more? Okay. So... Don't you just love millennials? It doesn't make sense to me why a $5 cup of coffee tastes any better than a $2 cup of coffee. You know, I don't get it. Uh, But uh, they do, evidently. But um, I guess they're paying for the ambiance. But, um, of course, I don't view it as ambiance. I see it all as new age. You know, I'm talking about I'm holding my breath the whole time I go in there. You say, you going to Starbucks? Somebody gives me a gift card. Yes, I will go in and spend it. Okay, but uh, that's about the only thing that will get me into Starbucks is a gift card. Okay. But anyway, I just want to make it clear, okay, I'm an old-fashioned fundamentalist. That's why I drink Tim Hortons and Dunkin' Donuts. We're talking bare bones, coffee shop, old-fashioned. Okay, so uh, they haven't gotten into the new age yet. Okay, but um, I don't know how we got on that. Oh, yeah, I do know how we got on that, but we'll leave that alone for the moment. Okay, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Okay, there it is. Okay, so I got theology on this thing, man. Okay, so uh, we'll just leave it all alone and move on. Uh, You got to remember, whenever you go after a speaker who speaks after you, you could be in big trouble. Okay, so... So I'm not saying a thing about Brother Sapples, not a thing. Okay, so he's coming next. Okay, so we'll leave that one alone. But, um, but anyway, let's get back to our subject matter. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Have you ever read a scripture verse, and you'd be honest, after you read the scripture verse, it sounded too good to be true? Can I th- read you three scripture verses that actually, if you're honest, sound too good to be true? <laughs> Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. I'd like you to see verse number 14. Of course, we're on page 31 of your notes, as I I may have mentioned earlier, but let's get there as well as the text of Scripture. Now, let's look at this, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Now, I'm not raising my hand, but how many of you from the moment you got saved to now have always had victory every time you were tempted? Could I see your hands? If anybody raised their hand, I'd say, you must have gotten saved five seconds ago. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, is that verse true? But it doesn't seem to match up with the audience in this room. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Let's look at a very familiar verse of Scripture, verse number 17. The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, could you tell me the next two words? Oh, all things are become new. How many of you would say from the moment you got saved to now that everything from the old life is gone and you've never gone back to anything from the old life? I'm not raising my hand, but is there anybody in this room that would raise your hand? Well, is the verse true? Certainly it's true. We know the Bible's true. Nobody's in this room working through that particular issue, I would assume. At least most would not be. So what's the problem? The problem certainly is not with the Word of God, but it seems to be the problem may be in our own experience. Doesn't the verse seem too good to be true? How many of you before you got saved had an anger problem? How many before you got saved had a lust problem? How many before you got saved had a worry problem? Well, the Bible says all those things are gone. You know, how many things have become new? All things. Okay, now let's look down at verse number 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Here it is. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
So how many would say from the moment you got saved, again, I'm not raising my hand, but from the moment you got saved to now that you have lived in perfect righteousness? How many would raise their hand? Well, none of us would. Well, you say, preacher, that's legal righteousness. Oh, it is legal righteousness. It's forensic righteousness. I'm glad when I'm going to stand at, at, if I were to stand at Judgment Day, and I don't believe we'll be there, but if I were to stand at Judgment Day, I'm telling you, friend, I'm glad that legally I am declared to be righteous. I get that. But it's more than legal forensic righteousness. See, the sin just isn't legal and, and forensic. The sin is real. And if Jesus became sin for us, then the righteousness must be real too. It's not just on paper. It's not just legal. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, wow, these are really statements that seem way too good to be true. And one of the reasons is because we find a hard time lining up our experience or our past with those clear statements of Scripture, don't we? So you say, okay, preacher, what's the resolution? Well, I'm going to start to, I think most of you know the resolution. In each of those passages, you found the word in Christ or in Him. So what does that mean? Because ever, evidently whatever that means is an important dynamic in understanding what we're talking about. Well, let's look here at the, if you go to the notes, we'll begin with um, uh, number one here in a moment, our promised victory, too good to be true. Okay, we're going to go through that in just a moment. I want to walk through the three verses that we just walked through, but Let's just uh, be practical for a quick moment because I do want us to really understand where I'm trying to go is down boots on the ground, day by day living. Can I say this? Every time you speak in a um, hurried or anxious or irritated word towards your spouse, it is indicating you don't really know who you are. And if you don't know you, who you are, you don't really know who he is. How about this? Every time you fall prey to inappropriate, lustful thinking, it indicates that you don't know who you are, which means you really don't understand who He is. How about this one? Every time uh, we get angry and there's an outburst that comes out of our heart into our mouth and we say angry words, it indicates we don't know who we are. And we really, really do not know who He is. I want us this morning to really consider the fact that the Bible is not theory, it is reality. Amen. And if somehow we're not living in that reality, we've got to figure out what's the problem, because there has to be a solution. Now, let's see there, A, promises. The very first one is going to be victory. I'm going to give you three things. We've already given you the verses, but I'd like us to just look at it quickly. Um, let's give a, just a Bible definition of three, or just at least maybe a, not a Bible definition, but a theological definition that would be based on biblical truth. What would we call victory? Because it says, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph. Now, what's that talking about? Now, I've defined victory as this, supernatural victory over temptation to sin. It is not just clenching your teeth or white knuckling. It is divine deliverance. So the kind of victory we're talking about is not clenching your teeth. 
It is not like they sometimes call it, sometimes in people coming over sinful things, besetting sins, they call it white-knuckling. I think you understand what white-knuckling is. Any guy who has ever come out of the addiction issue on the issue of pornography will tell you that many times the first efforts that seem to be what they turn to is this clenching your teeth, white-knuckling, but it never works. It's like building pressure on a dam, and as the water level grows, it finally there's no longer the white-knuckling and the clenching of the teeth works. That is not true victory. Victory is supernatural. It's a divine deliverance. Okay, so holiness, sanctification, a verse we haven't read yet. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Then our verse there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we met a moment ago. So what is holiness or sanctification? Those that were in Sunday school here at Falls Baptist Church know that's the name of God that was dealt with in Sunday school. And, and so, of course, I think most of us understand that the whole concept of separ uh, holiness or sanctification is the concept of separation. It's interesting to me how that separation is one of those bad words. We don't like the word separation. But actually, when you got married, the whole concept of marriage is separation. Did you know that? Amen. You know, it's interesting to me that separation, the focus of separation is not primarily on what you're separated from. It's primarily on what you're separated to. Amen. See, during a wedding ceremony, the pastor has the vows, and usually they quote after him. And one of the part of the vows is forsaking all others. So imagine the pastor's looking at the groom and he's repeating after him and, and uh, you know how grooms do, they usually miss a few words, but anyway, you know how it goes. And, and uh, so he's saying, forsaking all others, can you imagine the groom looking at the pastor and you say, what gives, preach? You mean I've got to forsake all the girls in the world just for this one? I think the wedding ceremony would be over, you know what I'm talking about? He'd have a, bo uh, a bouquet of flowers in his mouth. And probably needfully for. You know, none of you at your marriages, I would hope, none of you at your marriage ceremony thought, oh, that's a bummer. i got to forsake all the women in the world just for this one. Separation is really, if you think of separation negatively, you don't think of it biblically. That's right. Separation is always unto. Yes, and be ye holy unto me, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be, anybody know? Mine. That sounds pretty positive to me. So it is holiness, sanctification in the Bible sense. It's an innate separation from all that is sinful or tainted with sin because that is who we are. Now that's a pretty high level, isn't it? Both of these definitions are intended to be on a very high level. You don't grit your teeth and get to this because it's in the inner core of who you are. Number three, righteousness. We found that word, of course, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So I've defined righteous. These are my own definitions that I've tried to put together. But it says not just doing right, but being right. No wrong or mixed motives in righteous living. You know the Bible says the plowing of the wicked is, anybody know? Sin. How can that be? And the answer is because a lost person can't do anything without sinning. Everything he does is motivated from the wrong motive. A lost person sins the entire day long. I don't care if they're eating. It doesn't matter if they're plowing. It does not matter why because their motives are mixed. 
It's really a remarkable thing. Unfortunately, when we get saved, a lot of that transfers into our Christian life where we're still motivated by mixed motives. But true righteousness is, is understanding that it's no wrong or mixed motives in our righteous living. Now think about that. So it's not just focused on what you do. It's far more focused on who you are, which results, of course, in what you do. So I've tried to get the, the level up where the Bible puts it. Because as I mentioned many times, I think we can take Bible concepts and we kind of can dumb them down if we're not careful. But I wanted to get them up there where there is clearly a supernatural understanding that there's no way any of this is happening without divine intervention. So that's uh, the, uh, what we might call there the promises of those three things. But now let's look at something we already mentioned, that little two words, in Christ. Now, this obviously is the key, and we'll develop it further, but let's just look at it for a moment here. One of the great verses there, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, what does it mean when we're in Jesus Christ? One theologian, Leon Morris, put it this way, the saved are of him. Uh, where the preposition gives the idea of source, their new life derives from God. They are in Christ Jesus. Whole books have been written about this ignatic, 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 I can't even say the word, you know what, phrase, which Paul habitually used. When you preach to teenagers, you don't use big words. Okay, but anyway, uh, enigmatic. Okay, there we go. Phrase, which Paul habitually uses to indicate the relationship between believers in Christ. Briefly, it shows that the believer is connected to his Lord in the closest possible fashion. Christ is the very atmosphere in which he lives, but we must not interpret this mechanically. Christ is a person. The phrase describes personal attachment to a personal Savior. Now, friends, we are in union with Jesus Christ. I've sometimes used this, uh, I've used this illustration with young people. If you take a sponge and put it in the water, is the water in the sponge, and the sponge or the sponge in the water? And the answer is, well, they're both true. But I think a sponge is maybe a poor illustration because you can pull a sponge out of a water and dry it. I think a better illustration is if you put red food coloring into a bucket of water. So my question is, the red food coloring in the water or is the water in the red food coloring? And the answer is, there's inseparable union and pretty much, friend, that is going to stick together. <laughs> when we and you, you and I got saved, we got into union with Jesus Christ. And may I tell you this, friend, His history became ours. So when the Bible says, I am crucified with Christ, that's not just a nice little theological concept. I don't understand it, but it actually is true. <laughs> We're in union with Jesus Christ so much that his history has become ours. It reminds me, J. Vernon McGee was over in the Bible lands and found uh, the Muslim gatekeeper that uh, worked with the cemetery on top of uh, uh, what is the place of the skull. Many of us believe is the authentic place where Jesus was crucified. And he got the gate, paid the gatekeeper off. That's pretty much what you have to do in some of those situations. And, but he wanted to get on top of Calvary. And when he did, he was deeply moved. The Muslim gatekeeper looked at him and said, um, you ever been here before? And he said, yes, I have. He said, when were you here? He said, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I want to tell you something, friends. 2,000 years ago, you were there. You know why? The Bible says you were. Because you have so been in union with Jesus Christ that his history has become yours. You've been raised up together with him. 
These are remarkable truths. There'll be more said about them, but I want you to understand what it means to be in Christ. As Ruth Paxson says in Life on the Highest Plane, a classic on the, the Spirit-filled life, to be in Christ is to be where He is, is to be what He is, and to share in what He has. It's an inseparable union. If you're saved, friend, there is no way you can ever break that union. It is inseparable for eternity. I know I've used this illustration before, but it does help. I uh, uh, remember when I was a kid, Evangelist Phil Schuler. I'm just curious how many of you remember Evangelist Phil Schuler? I mean, uh, he, Evangelist Phil Schuler was out of the old school. You know what I'm talking about? It was like, um, um, it's not that he looked for fights, but you almost felt like he did. You know what I'm talking about? He just was one of those old guys that just, uh, he didn't shy away from anything. And, um, uh, but anyway, one day he was out and he's uh, from Los Angeles. His dad was a pastor out there and he was in Los Angeles traffic. If you ever want to lose your sanctification, that's where you go, L.A., and you'll lose your sanctification out there. Uh, but anyway, so he was out in that L.A. traffic, and you know how that goes, and, and he inadvertently cut somebody off. That's not something you want to do in L.A. traffic, okay? He cut somebody off, and the guy got angry. And so he pulled up right next to Phil Schuler, and he indicated to him, roll your window down. Now, most of us would speed up, you know what I'm talking about, like, get me out of here. Not Phil Schuler, like, this was, man, this was it, man. This is like honey to a bee. I mean, I'm telling you. And so he rolls that window down, and uh, the guy says, go to, and he used hell in a very, not very nice way. You know what I'm talking about? And I love what Phil Schuler responded to him. He said, I can't. <laughs> you know, my friend, the reason that is true is because you and I are union with Jesus Christ and He can't. Amen. So understand our union is a very real union and it's the basis. I know many of us understand it. I've understood this, but perhaps recently it has become to a greater understanding. So what's the problem then? Boy, this all sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, wow, victory, supernatural victory. It's the divine deliverance, righteousness. Man, that's no mixed motives. Real righteousness because that's who is we, we really are. Wow, old things have passed away. All things have become new. In uh, innate separatism, separation from all that is evil and wicked and wrong motives and and uh, wow some wonderful thoughts here and that's uh, that's who Jesus is and we're in him so what's the problem well one of the problems is simply this we all recognize that uh, from the moment you get saved to the moment you die you still have something that is uh, trying to pull you away from God <laughs> People package it theologically different I personally believe when a man gets saved the old man is dead and it's replaced by the new man. So that the center and core of your being becomes who you are in Jesus Christ. You become regenerated. That is the center of your being. But in their circumference is something the Bible calls the flesh. And I'm talking about the flesh. The Bible uses the flesh in two ways. The word sarks can be in two ways. One is flesh and bones. And the other is that downward pull that every one of us understands. Now, I'm talking about that downward pull, that now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, and the list goes on. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Galatians 5.24 talks about when it says crucifying the flesh with its affections and lusts. Most of us understand what that downward pull is. In fact, all of us do, if we're just dead honest. But when you and I got saved, friends, that center, the center of the, of the being we, the old man was crucified, and, and the new man, that became who we were, who, who we are in Christ. But we have on the periphery the flesh. 
Now that flesh is constantly trying to draw us into wrong response. And the first one is pretty obvious. It's called sin. Now God has created, I, I think this is interesting, God has created some, how do I say this, warnings to our system. The first warning is, when we sin, have you ever noticed there is guilt? No matter who you are in this room, if you're saved, we all understand what it is to sin and feel bad about it. I was talking to one of my daughters when they were just little things. I've used this before. And she said, Daddy, when I do wrong, I feel yucky. How many have ever felt yucky? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we all feel, you know what it is to feel yucky. You say a word to your wife that's a little unkind or a little bit uh, heated, and you feel yucky, don't you? See, we all understand what it is to feel yucky. That's that guilt. It's that red light. God's saying, okay, there's a problem. There's a problem. You've sinned. There's a problem. Here's, um, um, but then I want us to see, well, let me just read there underneath that guilt. It says, we often are far more defined by our failure and sin than who God says we are in his word. Yeah. Now, in a moment, we went through who we are in Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are saying, preacher, I'm having a hard time believing that's true about me. But I'm telling you, friends, we, why do we struggle with that? And the answer is because we're far more defined by our past failures. We're far more defined by our weaknesses. We're far more defined by our propensities, our besetting sins, than we are what the Bible says. Amen. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to say a few things that we'll come back to. Now, there's a second warning system that comes out. The first one is guilt. The second one is hurt. Many times we're not only defined by our own failures, we're defined by other people's failures that have affected us. Yeah. We've talked about this for several conferences in the past, but when a father walks out of a home and or a father is an angry pro problem and he says angry things, many times his children become defined by his sin. And as a result of his sin, there's a provocation. Have you ever noticed when somebody provokes you or wrongs you, you have a strong propensity to react wrong? Have you ever noticed that? Hurt, I don't know what it is about hurt, but it's particularly true in the male species, but there's not something about pain. You know what it does? It wants to cause other people pain. When you get hurt, have you ever noticed that you want to hurt somebody else? Now, I've used this illustration before, but again, uh, many folks perhaps weren't here a few back, years back when I dealt with some of this. Uh, I'm going to ask you men to be honest, and for us men, that's a pretty rare thing, but I'm going to ask you to be honest. How many of you men out here would admit you'd at least one time in your life hit your head against the stupid cabinets? Okay, there you are. Mrs. Van Gelderen's gone, so he's okay, I can say the word. Okay, yeah, you hit your head on the cabinets. How, how, many, how, many of you, how many of you would admit that after you hit your head on the cabinets, this is just you men, ladies, I'm not I don't know lady stuff on this. Okay, but how many of you men, after you hit your head on the cabinets, the next thing you wanted to do, you didn't do it, but the next thing you wanted to do was destroy the cabinets. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like the cabinets aren't the problem. It was the dumb guy who hit his head on them. You know what I'm talking about? But hurt's a strange thing, isn't it? Hurt does not think rationally. It just lashes out at the object that caused the hurt. You know what hurt does? It causes us to sin. Now we got two problems, hurt and guilt. And we're all messed up. And many people are defined by the people who have sinned against them. 
If you work in this at all, you know that sometimes a kid gets taken advantage of in a terrible, horrific way, morally, whatever, and they become defined by that. They become defined by the offense against them, and they had nothing to do with it. Many kids blame themselves for their parents' divorce. Like, what? So many times other people's sin, if we don't properly process or biblically deal with it, provokes us to sin. So let's read this little paragraph here. When we sin or when somebody else sins against us, we experience some automatic responses. If we do the sinning, our automatic response is called guilt. If someone else sins against us, our automatic response is called hurt. God designed these two responses to tell us that something is wrong that something is wrong has happened and that something just got fractured and needs healing. Even when we are the one being sinned against, we still cannot handle sin because sin done to us will always ignite the nature of the sin already in us. Do you see that? So, what we, so we give ourselves permission to act out sinfully. I think we'll all recognize that the big problem is sin, whether we're doing the sinning or somebody is sinning against us, which provokes us then to sin. Two big problems. So, that brings us to the third point, and this is going to be um, our faulty view, what am I thinking? <laughs> you ever thought, what am I thinking? Because what you think is extremely important, and all of us understand that the Bible deals a lot with the mind, <laughs> the renewing of your mind. The Bible deals a lot with this. So, let's just try by the grace of God to spend a few moments and ask ourselves if we've been thinking incorrectly. Now, let me just say this. If you've gotten to a point where you're hopeless and you think, I don't think I'll ever get out this sin out of my life the rest of my Christian life, then you're probably not thinking correctly. In fact, I know you're not thinking correctly. Because the Bible says there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. Now, i got a question for you. Every time you're tempted, is there a way out? And the answer is, absolutely. A few years ago, there was a very popular theology. It's not popular anymore because it didn't work. But anyway, there was a very popular theology that believed you could reach a point where you never sinned again. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but the problem is they called it a sinless perfectionism. How many have ever heard of sinless perfectionism? Okay, it's a theological, uh, it's per perhaps a lot in the past, particularly came out of Wesleyanism and Salvation Army theology and that kind of thing. And, uh, but I will say this, we have switched theologies from sinless perfectionism to sinful imperfectionism. We have gone from believing that we can have victory to believing that we're always going to be defeated. Both are wrong. Every time you and I are tempted, there's a way out. Do you believe that? I'm telling you, friends, if you're hooked, listen, if you're hooked on, uh, you're an alcoholic, I got really good news for you. You're a drunk, I'm just telling you right now, Jesus can deliver you. Amen. See, there's deliverance. We get that one, don't we? I've known people, man, I got saved, poured the liquor down the drain, never touched it again. Hallelujah. Old things passed away, all things become new. But you know what often that same person will say? I still struggle with anger. I still struggle with lust. I've had people say, man, God delivered me from drugs, alcohol. But man, do I struggle with that lust issue. Well, the same God that delivered from one Amen. can Amen. deliver from the other. In fact, He already has. Yes. See, our problem is we become defined by our defeat. We become defined by a lie. That's right. Now, 
Let's look at a couple of our wrong thinkings. We have a wrong view of what to do. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I've written a book called Zero 100, which deals with this, but just read a little few things here. After giving an illustration about his grandfather's using a diesel tractor, pull a plow across the field, the author, Jim Berg, makes this statement. As believers, we can no more please and serve God effectively in our own strength than my grandfather could put a plow in his own strength. I think we understand that. Be strong in the Lord and the power of? His might. It's a total dependence on Jesus to enable us and strengthen us to do what we can never do unless He has strengthened us to do it. Because the strength isn't physical, it's spiritual. Amen. And you and I are bankrupt of spiritual strength, but hallelujah, we're in Jesus and He has a limitless supply. Amen. I've often put it this way. When I was younger, I thought in the Christian life I'd get stronger and stronger and stronger. Wow, man, as I grew in the Lord, I'd get stronger and stronger and stronger. And by the time I turned 50, I'd be a spiritual giant. And then you know what happened? I turned 50. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I got issues. I still got problems. And you know what I've learned? The Christian life is not weak little me getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The Christian life is weak little me who will always be weak, tapping into him who is strong, who will always be strong. In other words, friends, I will never reach a point where I don't need God. I need God more today than I probably have ever needed him. I tell teenagers all the time, you think you need God? I need him more. I can guarantee you. And you do too. It's not just I'll do my part, God will do his part. No, I'm, you need God. You don't have spiritual strength. You're bankrupt. You have to trust him to enable you. Now we'll talk about obedience because it's in the mix. But the first focus is not on the obedience. That's why these authors, um, uh, the last phrase, put it this way. We value striving because we trust in our, uh, in our, our own assessment of who we are instead of God. In other words, we trust self-dependence in some measure. Okay, so we have a wrong view of what to do. Okay, in other words, we're going to talk about this more tonight, but we focus more on what, it, we're Americans. What do I need to do to fix this? Instead of looking to God to enable us for a miraculous intervention. Okay, let's look at B. We have a wrong view of who we are. Now, I've already kind of started to touch on this, but I want to spend a little bit more time because this is core and central to the, to the rest of the time. And it's not that it's a long lecture here or message, but look, look at salvation. Again, from Ruth Paxson. In the physical realm, we recognize two laws which operate everywhere and, are not, and always. Physical life is the result of physical birth. And the thing that is born partakes of the nature of that which gave it birth. Okay, light begets light. Natural begets natural. Jesus told Nicodemus, the same kind of law prevails in the spiritual realm. The spiritual life is the result of spiritual birth. And that which is born of God partakes of the nature of God. Light begets light. Divine begets divine. Uh, John 3, 6 and 7. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He must be born again. <laughs> May I say this, friend, when you got saved, there was a radical transformation. The center changed. The old center is gone and the new center has come. The old man was crucified and the new man, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, is now the central of your being. Now, as I mentioned, as a result of that being core and central, that brings us then to sanctification because, as I mentioned, we have on this perimeter, we have this flesh. Have you ever noticed the flesh is what we become defined by? But that's not the core central of who we are. It's on the perimeter. When you die, the flesh is gone, but who you are is still there. 
You are not defined by that which goes at death. Obviously, you'll have a a, uh, glorified body. I get that. I don't understand all that that will be. But that which is the downward pull is gone. That is not who you are. And Satan wants you to be defined by your flesh instead of being defined by who you are in the core and central of your being. You are born again, regenerated, a child of God. You are a new man. Now, let's just look at a few things here that might help us with this. We will never know our identity in Christ, and we will never live out our identity unless we start on the path of trusting God. To resolve our sin issues, we must begin trusting who God says we are. You say, well, preacher... I don't feel very holy, and I don't feel righteous, and I don't feel like old things are gone, and I don't feel uh, victorious, I feel defeated. We're going to come into this room for a moment. The question I would ask you is, who are you trusting, your feelings or the revealed revelation of the Word of God? He that trusted his own heart, you know what God says, is a fool. I'm going to just be dead honest with you. You ever notice, I think Harold Vaughn a few years ago preached a message where he talked about preaching to yourself. Do you preach to yourself? You probably need start need to do, because I don't know, sometimes I have to say, you know what, Jim, you're being a fool, because you're trusting in your own heart, trusting how you feel instead of trusting what the Bible says is, and we all fall, we sometimes get on teenagers saying, you know, stop living by your feelings, but there are a lot of adults in this room who live by their feelings. And you are defined in your Christian life by how you feel. You are not defined by the Word of God. That's why you're on a roller coaster one day encouraged, next day defeated, one day up, next day down. It's because you're more defined by how you feel than what the Word of God says. So you got to start preaching to yourself. When you preach to yourself, you can say things you can't sing in a congregation. Like, I can't look out at you and say, you're a bunch of fools. I can't do that. But I can do it when I'm preaching to myself. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some preachers can do that. My dad said years ago at Bob Jones College, he said they had a preacher come through and got the whole, whole, uh, the whole student body got saved again. I mean, he got them all saved. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Preached the P of Calvinism, got them all lost. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, none of them were persevering, got them all lost and got them saved again. You know what I'm talking about? You know what happens when you get saved again? Nothing. Because you've already been saved. Okay, <laughs> nothing happens. Yeah, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Got them all saved again. And somebody called, Dr. Bob Sr. was out on the arrival trail. He canceled the meeting, came rushing back to Bob Jones, canceled classes, everybody there in chapel at 8 o'clock. And he got up, and my dad said he glowered at the student body, just glowered at it. And then, he, you know, they said he would put his hand on his head, and, and he didn't have much up there, and, and he'd rub his head. I don't know what that had to do with it. But, uh, but anyway, and he looked at him, and he said, you fools. You're a bunch of fools. <laughs> now, not many preachers can do that. I, I've never done that to BCM students, but... Uh, uh, but you can preach to yourself that way. He that is trusted in his own heart is a fool. Listen, friends, when we're inconsistent in our Christian life, we're trusting in our own heart. Okay. Let me just say something about this. Because many times when it comes to, this is what we call positional truth. Now, one of the things in theology, I love theology, but one of the dangers we have is to keep it up in the ivory tower instead of getting it down where we live. And many times we think, oh yeah, in Jesus I'm righteous. In Jesus old things are passed away. Hallelujah, old things become new. In Jesus I always triumph. What does that mean? And we view this, don't miss this, we view positional truth as potential. 
Now, I'm just going to tell you theologically, you've got to get this down. Positional truth is not potential primarily. It is reality. Amen. I'm going to make this statement illustrate it later, but something can be real and yet not realized. In fact, in our lives, there are a lot of things that are real, but they're not realized. And in a moment, you're going to see throughout the Word of God, God uses different words to help us realize what is real. One of them is in Romans 6 called reckon. The word trust and believe is often used in that context. These are words God has designed to say, hey, it's real. Now you need to realize. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I like this next quote here. God has given us the DNA of godliness. We are saints. Righteous. Nothing we do will make us more righteous than we already are. Did you get that statement? Now he's talking about the core central being. Nothing we'll do will alter this reality. God knows our DNA. He knows that we are Christ in me. And now he is asking us to join him in what he knows is true. Now you say, well, preacher, how can that be true? Because my DNA may be righteous, but man, I had a lot of unrighteousness in my life. And one of the illustrations that is so helpful that is even was used by these authors is the illustration of the caterpillar and the butterfly. You know, a caterpillar doesn't look like a butterfly. Have you ever noticed that? Most of the time, caterpillars are kind of, could we say, kind of ugly. There are exceptions, but most of the women out here would consider them to be ugly, all of them, but... Um, you know, they, but in the DNA of that little caterpillar is, it's a butterfly. And it really is a butterfly. Now, it doesn't matter how much you yell and scream at that caterpillar, hey, stop looking like a caterpillar, kind of buck up, man, start looking like a butterfly. It, it, it's not going to help the, the caterpillar. You know why? Because it's in a process of maturing. What does that caterpillar need to do? And the answer is, it needs to trust its DNA. Now, the difference between this illustration and us is, we can have the DNA, but we don't grow if we don't believe it. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's commanding us to be metamorphosized, which means that the responsibility for this DNA to be, to be flourished is our faith, by renewing our thinking. So the maturity is not automatic. Now the illustration helps us. The illustration helps us recognize that what we're talking about is not a matter of DNA, it's a matter of, don't miss this, maturity. Christians who are renewing their mind look more like butterflies than those who don't. Those that believe what God says about who we are look more like butterflies than those who don't. That's all it's saying here. Well, I'm going to take a little, just this will be an illustration here. Um, uh, how many listen at least, at least once? You've listened to the The Generation podcast. Can I see your hands, please? The Generation podcast. Wow, great, great. Uh, uh, my daughter Jana and Anna Faith, my niece, uh, do one called Faith Talks, okay? How many of you girls have listened to Faith Talks? Okay, yeah, okay. I know there are a lot of guys to listen to, but we won't put them on the spot here. Okay, but anyway, uh, Faith Talks. And uh, in December, they did one on this particular truth. 
And my daughter wrote a poem for it, and I, I know that I'm going to embarrass her, and I hate to do that. I really do. But she reads it way better than I. I'm not a poet. I couldn't. I mean, if you put a gun to my head, you'd have to pull the trigger. I couldn't write a poem. I mean, if, if I'm going to write a poem, I've got to use artificial intelligence, you know, that new little website, you know, where you put in enough and it writes a poem for you. Those are pretty, pretty weak, too. But anyway, uh, but um, she, she does a lot better job than I. So I'm going to ask them to just play. If some, some of you girls may have listened to uh, that December podcast, but I'm going to ask her to read. But before I do, let me say something about, she talks about a caterpillar. I didn't realize this, but every day it has to eat, it has to eat twice as much as it weighs every day because it's beginning to fuel the DNA. And that DNA, now think about the analogy here, <laughs> got to fuel, eaten twice its weight to fuel the DNA so that maturity process can continue to go on because it's going to need a lot of energy to that metamorphosis to take place. So that might help us, and she's gonna, she'll ha have that uh, played up over here, and then we'll make a few comments afterwards. Go ahead. Uh. Hello there. How are you today? Look down. Keep going, if you may. Yes, I'm a caterpillar on the outside, but I'm actually a butterfly inside. I know I'm stubby and kind of bunched. I often get ignored or crunched, but really, truly, I confide I am a butterfly inside. Although you label me in the worm fam, my creator told me who I am, and so I say with humble pride, I am a butterfly inside. Now, you might notice what I eat. More than my weight, now that's a feat. I feast upon the bread he supplied to feed my butterfly inside. Don't judge the process. Yes, it's slow. Just give me time to mature and grow. Right now, I crawl. One day, I'll glide, because I'm a butterfly inside. My creator told me I can trust when darkness comes I know it must, that even when I feel I've died, I'm still a butterfly inside. Sometimes his words just don't sink in, just looking at my wrinkled skin. But DNA, the truth replied, you're still a butterfly inside. You need not care what may appear, for I've not given you that spirit of fear. Power, wisdom, love I provide, all found in the butterfly inside. I could inch about my day, like a worm, the normal way. But what freedom when I abide and truly believe I'm a butterfly inside? Are you a butterfly inside? Hmm. Do you really believe that? You know what my contention is? Most of the time we don't. We're defined by our past. We're defined by our failures. We're defined by our propensities. We're defined by our inclinations. We're defined by our bed-setting sins. And we are not defined by what God says we are. We are righteous in Him. We are wisdom in Him. We are sanctification in Him. Old things have passed away. All things have become new in Him. We are always triumphing in Him. I'm telling you, friends, you've got to get a hold of who you are. We really don't believe it. Every time you get frustrated, you don't believe it. Every time you lust, you don't believe it. Every time you look at pornography, you don't believe it. Every time you get impatient with your spouse, you don't believe it. Every time some of you children get upset with your siblings, you don't believe it. You know what God is simply saying? Renew your mind. That's how you get transformed. How do you renew your mind? Believe what He says about who you are and who He is. You're going to hear a lot more in this conference that will help you begin to understand who is God and what are we not thinking right about Him and who, who are we and what are we not thinking about right in our own minds. Look, if you would please, at the next quote. That is the secret of holiness. 
Not my holiness, but his. You are in union with the Holy One. You know, many times we see that, be holy for I am holy. And Do you ever get this idea? I said this earlier on Sunday night for those that were here, but you ever get that? Or Wednesday night, I guess it was, but there weren't a whole lot here because of the storm. But I, uh, be holy for I am holy. Many times we look at it this way. God is saying, hey, listen, friends, be holy. Buck up. Get with it. Don't you understand I'm holy? Get with this deal. Now, don't get me wrong. God is challenging us with who He is, but it's far more. You know what He's saying? Be holy for I'm holy and you're in me, which means you're holy. You're in union with the Holy One. You say, preacher, I don't understand that. I'm not sure I do either. But I will tell you this, as you mature, you will begin to understand that will be fleshed out in your life a whole lot more. Who you are will begin to be reflected in how you live. Let's see the next one. Do we, I, I like these, these thoughts here. Do we see ourselves as saved sinners? We'll see this again. Or saints who sometimes sin. Do we see ourselves as having to get into temptation? All of those indicate wrong thinking. Okay, so we have a, a wrong idea of who we are. C, we have a wrong idea of who God is. 1 John 4, 9, of course, says, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, and it talks about that we might live through Him. And friends, one of the greatest things about the love of God is that He has, through His death, burial, and resurrection, provided us with life that can be lived through Him. Here's just a few thoughts. Uh, in fact, um, I think it's uh, We Would See Jesus. I could be wrong about that. But I think in We Would See Jesus, it may be another one of those books, but it, it points out that we talk about this week, Jesus is the I Am. And He talks about Jesus is the I Am Fill in the blank. He's the good shepherd. He's meek and lowly of heart. You know what Jesus is saying? I am whatever you need at that moment. I am. So understanding that, let's just, uh, let's just talk about the love of God, His unconditional love. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Maybe a few questions before I read this. Have you ever thought that God's frowning at you? Have you ever thought that God is, uh, maybe doesn't love you as much as He did yesterday because you did a whole lot better yesterday? We have a wrong concept of who God is. No, don't get me wrong. He's not soft on our sin. The Bible says He's going to correct us because He delights in us. <laughs> because He loves us. He's going he's to help us grow. But the point is, I tell young people all the time, God loves you as much as you're, when you're sinning as when you're not <laughs> But we don't believe that, do we? So, uh, just a few thoughts here. God has shown all His cards, revealing breakthrough, break, breathtaking protection. He says, in essence, what if I tell them who they are right now? What if I take away any element of fear? What if I tell them they will, I will always love them? That I love them right now as much as I love my only son? What if I tell them they are no longer, there are no logs of past offenses, of how little they pray, or how off they've let me down? What if I tell them they are actually righteous right now? What if I tell them I'm crazy about them? 
What if I tell them that if, uh, if I'm their Savior, they're going to heaven no matter what? It's a done deal. What if I tell them that they have a new nature? They are saints, not saved sinners. What if I tell them they actually live in them now? My love, power, nature at their disposal. What if I tell them they don't have to put on masks? What if uh, that, that they don't need to pretend we're close? What if I knew, uh, if they knew that it, when uh, they mess up, I'll never retaliate? What if they were convinced bad circumstances aren't my way of evening the score? What if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how little they sin, but how how much they allow me to love them? What if I tell them they can't hurt my heart, but I'll never, uh, what, what if they tell them they can hurt my heart, but I'll never hurt theirs? What if I tell them it isn't about their self-effort, but allowing me to live my life through them? Amen. Well, you know what? He has told us all that. I want to tell you, friends, many times our concept, because we're defeated, because we do not have a right understanding of who God is. May I say this? One of the things, one of the glories of being a New Testament saint is the provision is already there. And there's not a sin in this room that cannot be met with the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And I love the present tense of those of you that are Greek scholars. And of course, I'm using the word scholar. I'm with pastors. I'm using it extremely lightly. But anyway, uh, those of you that know a little bit about the Greek, do you know that that word cleanseth is in the present tense? The blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. And hallelujah, friends, your sins and the last few hours, your sins of yesterday are no match for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, friend, Jesus is delighted when you and I just get sick of it and get honest with God. I don't think it's wrong to say, God, please forgive me. But 1 John 1, 9 is not telling you, you've got to say, please forgive me. You say, preacher, what's it saying? It's saying, if you get honest with God, he'll forgive you. If you just say, God, I got irritated with my wife. God, I got frustrated about those circumstances. God, I got angry about that guy who cut me off. Guy, I, you know, and whatever. You know what God says? You're forgiven. Just getting honest with God. And God says you're forgiven. His blood is waiting to cleanse us. All we need to do is just get honest with God. But you know what we often do? God, I, you know, I struggle a little bit with my spouse, but really, man, this guy next door, he really struggles. I mean, we can hear him yelling through the walls. You know what? God's really not interested in your next door neighbor. He's interested in you as far as you're concerned. It's just getting honest with God. It's not comparing ourselves. It's not a sticking a mask on and coming to church acting like we're something we're not. In fact, I love the definition. I've heard it before and I think it's wonderful. Church is where you ought to be able to hurt out loud. Yeah. Church is where you ought to be able to come and say, would you pray for me? Man, I'm struggling with anger. I'm telling you, if you'd start coming to church telling godly people who love you and care about you about the issues you need victory in, you'd see a whole lot more victory than you see now. You say, how do you in the world can you say that? Because God gives grace to the humble. That's what it says. But instead, we come to church and act like we're something we're not. I've seen it with our evangelistic team. When we're praying, the more honest the team is, the more power is on the team. When the team talks about how they're struggling, how they're, whatever the issues might be, and there's a corporate prayer meeting where we're just talking about our needs, I don't know how to explain it. It's like God walks right through the door. You know why? Because He gives grace to the honest, to the humble. And it's where the power is. But not in our culture. You know what our culture is? Put the mask on and act like you're something you're not. Politicians are really good at that. But sometimes Christians are better. You know what God's saying? Just get honest to the appropriate people. Say, who are the appropriate people? God will show you. You might start with your spouse. Okay, we have a wrong view of who God is. And last of all, we have a wrong view of what Satan does. 
Just a couple of things here. Number one, Satan is a master illusionist. I think sometimes we forget this. The Bible talks about uh, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And, of course, that's the deceitful stratagems. Uh, he, is, uh, he is a very, very wily. He's a liar. And he knows how to spin deception around us. So, so I'm going to just prove this. And uh, perhaps I've said this before, but it might be a help. How many out here would admit, at least once in your life, you got discouraged? Okay, those of you who didn't raise their hand, you're in huge trouble. Okay, but anyway, you know, we've all been discouraged. You know what discouragement is? An illusion. So I want to ask you, at the worst point you've ever been discouraged in your life, was God discouraged about the circumstances you were in? No. The worst moment you've had, you know what God's doing up in heaven? Okay, I started this going about five months ago because I'm in the eternal present sense, so I got this already running over here, and I got this going, and I got this over here, I got this over here. About three years ago, I got this going because I knew this was coming, and I got this going over here. You know what I'm talking about? He's got it all figured out. He's not discouraged, so why are we? And the answer is because we bought into an illusion. Satan is a master illusionist. And you know what he loves to give you an illusion of? That you just have to get discouraged. You just have to get angry. You just have to get irritated. Why did she do that again? You just got to get frustrated. You've just got to lust. Okay, he wants you to get to the illusion that you just have to. And he's a master at spinning in your circumference, using your flesh to try to get you overwhelmed. But you know what, my friend? We can, you and I, you know what reckoning is saying? I don't believe the illusion. I believe that in Jesus I am righteous. Yeah. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen. I'm believing it. In Jesus, I'm righteous. I'm sanctified. Set apart in Jesus. Amen. Now, illusions are powerful. I've talked about this before, but it's, I just can't think of one that perhaps would help us anymore. But I... Uh, uh, several times in my life I've written this, ridden this ride that simulates hang gliding. Now, I've, I've admitted this. I feel like i just got to be honest, but I don't like heights. I, I just do not like heights. I mean, every time I see those 1940s and 50s pictures of people building the Empire State Building, eating lunch out on an I-beam, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm going to faint. I'm just thinking, <laughs> those people are absolute idiots. How in the world, Mrs. Van Gelden's not here for that one either. Okay, but anyway, how in the world can, uh, can they do that? I couldn't have done that. I'd have jumped and just committed suicide. I mean, that'd have been better. I mean, why, why faint? I mean, I'm telling you, I was going to faint anyway. I mean, that, how many can identify with me? How many? Oh, normal people. There are some normal people out here. Great. I remember some people just walk around in heights. I'm thinking, that's crazy. I don't like heights. Number one fear. I don't know why. It just is. But on this simulation of hand gliding, it is extremely immersive. You know, they put you in this little thing and, and have a seatbelt on, but, and you got little armrests, and man, I'm white knuckling. And talking about white knuckling, there are on that thing, because they tilt the thing to kind of make you gonna, like you're going to fall out. They blow wind in your face. They even have sense. I mean, it's very immersive sensory, and they got a big con, convave, cave lens, and so it's very, very huge, and you feel it's very immersive. And, and recently, when I was on that thing, I was, uh, they, they flew us over the Matterhorn. And I'm telling you, I was freaking out. I mean, I just felt this, that, that, oh, you know, I'm thousands of feet above. And you know what I had to do? I had to say, I'm not believing the illusion. It's a lie. I'm only 20 feet above the ground. 
If I fall out, I'm going to sprain my ankle and I can sue him and get a bunch of money so it's not a big deal. <laughs> so it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You know what I had to do that entire flight anytime it got high because one of them was in Monument Valley out there in Utah and you're going over these monuments way up in the air and I mean I'm just grabbing on. I had to keep reckoning so no I'm only 20 feet above the ground only 20 feet above the ground. I had to keep rejecting the illusion. And do you know what I'm telling you what the Christian life is? It's just like that hang gliding. You've got to keep rejecting the illusion. No, I don't believe that. No, I don't believe that. I don't, have to, I don't have to look at that. No, I don't have to go there. I don't have to say that. I don't have to be frustrated. I don't have to do that, right? Because that's not who I am. My flesh is trying to tell me that's who I am, but that's not who I am. Core and central, I believe in Jesus I'm righteous. In Jesus, old things are passed away. All things are become new. Hallelujah. That is my DNA. And by renewing my mind, guess what happens? The DNA begins to frame who I be, am becoming. And I began to be the butterfly God made me the moment I got saved. You're a butterfly inside. You pornographic addicts, you're a butterfly inside. You that are addicted to anger, you're a butterfly inside. You that can't believe God for nothing, you're a butterfly inside. And you know what you need to do? Believe it. Oh, it is a maturing process. I get that. But it is you that activates the DNA by believing it. That sounds pretty simple. And it's a remarkable thing, renewing your mind. That's what it says. Now, here's just a few practical things on our pathway forward. We'll just do these quickly. Thirst. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I like what Duncan Campbell says in the Price and Power Revival. The crisis of conversion is ever to be regarded as a conviction of guilt, but the crisis of sanctification is a conviction of want. It's like this, friends. The truths I am preaching to you today will not make a difference in your life unless you want them. I'm preaching to some teenager out here who you could care less about God. You don't spend time with God. God's not real to you. You're seeking after the world. And you're sitting here saying when that guy, that guy is going to be done. Because I will tell you, this truth will not impact you until you get sick of your defeat and you want it to be different. Amen. It's got to start with thirst. You got to say, I can't go on this way. I'm sick of it. I'm done with this. Man, I'm so tired of being defeated. I'm sick and tired of trying and failing. There's got to be an answer. Well, you're a prime target to get a hold of this thing. Thirst. Number two, repent. Now, let's look at that second quote. Repentance isn't doing something about my sin, it's admitting that I can't do anything about my sin. You ever thought of repentance that way? It is trusting that only God can cleanse me and only He can convince me I'm truly cleansed. I've been told repentance is a promise to God that I'm going to stop the sin and I'm sorry and I won't do that again and this time I mean it. Can I stop for a moment and say how many have ever fallen into that trap? Yeah, we all have. We're mistaken repentance for remorse. The intention not to sin is not the same as the power not to sin. It's not something you drum up, but the gifted ability, that's the grace of God, to find yourself saying, God, I can't. You can. I trust you now. You know what repentance really is? It's saying, God, I'm tired of my self-dependence. It doesn't work. And I'm making a decision to trust you. That's what repentance is. Just a 
want to read you a couple things because repentance is basically you're rejecting your wrong thinking about self and turning your point uh, trust toward the Lord. Just a, just a few questions. These are not original with me, but a few questions that might help us. Do I measure my closeness to God by how little I'm sinning or by my trust that to the exact extent the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves me? So how do you determine your closeness to God? Do I see myself primarily as a saved sinner or a saint who still sins? We mentioned that a moment ago. When I talk to God, do I spend more time rehearsing my failures or enjoying His presence? Am I drawn to severe authors and preachers who challenge me to get serious about sin or those who encourage me to trust this new identity in me? Of course, it's not wrong to hear preaching on sin, but the point is it's not just being drawn to that. It's being drawn to the fact this is who I am in Jesus. Am I drawn to messages telling me I haven't done enough or to those who remind me that who I am so that I can, I'm free to live out this life that God's given me? Do I believe that one day I might achieve being pleasing to God or am I convinced that right now by trusting Him I can please Him right now? Is my hard effort being spent preoccupied with sin or expressing and receiving love from God and others? That's again striving. Do I trust disciplines to make me strong or grace to strengthen me? Grace obviously will result in disciplines, but the focus is different. One's on self, one's on God. Do I believe that God is not interested in changing me because He already has? God's not interested in changing you. He's interested in maturing what He has already changed. See, that changes your concept. Because if he's interested in changing, you say, I got problems. Well, we all do. But the point is, the DNA is already there. Do I read the Bible as you ought, you should, why can't you, when will you, or as you can, this is who you are now in Jesus Christ. See, just get us to think a little bit. Okay, so you got to repent, self-dependence, wrong thinking. Okay, trust. I'm going to preach a whole message on this, Lord willing, tonight. But let's just look at the reckon, of course, is one of those trust words there in Romans 6. Some believe they will eventually, through sincere diligence, change into someone better. Their confidence is to change centers on sanctified self-effort. Some believe the very essence of who they are is completely changed. They are convinced of absolute fused union with the God of the universe. Their confidence to mature is placed squarely in trust in their new identity in Jesus. This does not mean they don't fail. They do fail, but in the end, they trust who God has made them. If I follow the first path, I'm trying to change from who I was into whom I should be. If I follow the second, I'm maturing into who I already am. See, it's trust. So I put it sometimes, the Christian life is not do and you'll be. The Christian life is because you are do. <laughs> based on who we are in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, if I could just say this quickly, Romans 8 deals with, um, in fact, I just want you to go to Romans 8. I'm going to do this very quickly, just a few pages back, Romans 8. just want to do this very quickly. Romans chapter 8, and I just want to show you this because this is central to the whole message. And I may deal with some of these other things tonight. We'll see. Romans chapter 8, just need to quickly go over this. If you look at verse number 5, the Bible tells us, verse number 5, this of course is talking about victory in Christ, and there's a lot of things we can talk about here. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Uh, verse number 7, for because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Okay, now, if you see, there's two prepositions. 
There's after and there is in. Now both of them are related to the words flesh and spirit. So God is contrasting walking after the flesh and He is contrasting walking after the spirit. He's also contrasting being in the flesh and being in the spirit. And we get a clue from uh, the, the ver last verse I read that if you are in the spirit you're saved and if you're in the flesh you're not. So in is what we might call positional truth. After is a really practical truth. Now let me help you out because I think this, um, this illustration kind of helps us understand practically the theological ramifications of this. Okay, now I'm going to take flesh and spirit away and use an analogy. And I'd like to use poverty and riches. Uh, someone who is in poverty is, they, they, that's all, they, they're, that's, they, they, all they can do is walk after poverty. They, they live after the ways of a poor man because that's their only option. They are in essence poor. Let's just imagine they live in a shack and have newspaper for wallpaper and they dumpster dive to get meals. They have rags for clothes and they have a garbage cart they stole from, uh, a, a, excuse me, a grocery cart they stole from uh, Walmart or whatever and they have all their worldly goods in there. And, and again, you northerners have no idea what I'm talking about. Go to Florida, you see them everywhere. Okay, but anyway, and so, um, so that's the idea. And this person is in poverty. They couldn't live after the ways of a rich man. It's impossible. They don't have the means. They're in essence poor. They have only one option, to walk after the ways of poverty. You tracking with me? So one day a well-dressed lawyer walks up to the door, knocks on the door, pulls out a checkbook, hands it to him. I know this is dated, but anyway, hands a checkbook to him and says, listen, your long-lost uncle just died. You just inherited $10 million. Here it is. Here's the checkbook. Do you know what? They're no longer in poverty. You know where they are now? They're in riches. Yeah, in riches. Now, can they, if they want to, still live after the ways of poverty? And the answer is, yeah, they sure could. They could still live in that shack. They could dumpster dive. And they could certainly wear rags for clothes and take that little grocery cart with all their worldly belongings in it. Sure, they could do that. Could they, if they wanted to, live after the ways of riches? And the answer is, yes. They'd have to take their checkbook down. Can you imagine that first, you know, that first kind of scared to death to go down to the bank? It's got its name on that thing. They write a check, you know, and they're thinking, oh, yeah, boy, it'd be nice to get a nice hot meal. So I'm going to write a check. I would say for $10, but these days it would be $15, even at McDonald's. You know what I'm talking about? So they write a check for $15, you know. They're going to go down to McDonald's, get a hot meal, you know. Not have to dumpster dive. And write it out a little scared. And they put it to the little timidly. They give it to the cashier, and she's kind of looking at it like, what in the world are you doing? She gets on her computer, you know, and her eyes get big. She sees $10 million with a, a new respect. You know, she walks over, hands uh, three fives. Boy, that guy's all pumped up, goes down to McDonald's, spends every cent of that 15 bucks. Says, you know what? I'm going to try that again. So he goes down to the bank this time a little more confident. You know what I'm talking about? Says, I could use some new clothes. And so he writes a check out for $300. Same thing, different cashiers. He's kind of looking at, what are you doing here? Writes the $300. She gets on the computer. Same thing. Oh, whoa. And uh, gives three $100 bills. Goes down, buys new clothes. You know what I'm talking about? Thinking, wow, this is working great. Starts looking on Zillow or whatever, you know, and finds a nice, you know, house, you know, $300,000. <coughs> well, probably 500 these days, but anyway. And goes down there and, you know, you know what I'm saying? My point is, gets more and more confident, more and more bold. 
world. And you know what that poor man's beginning to do? He's starting to live like he is. His essence is that he is in riches and now he's living after the ways of a rich man. And they, the point is simply this. When you and I got saved, we were in the flesh. We had no possibility of walking after the Spirit. But when we got saved, the Holy Spirit changed the center of who we are. We moved from being in, the, in this flesh to in the Spirit and he gave us a checkbook. And do you know what happens, friend, in your Christian life? When you start opening the Bible and you start writing checks, believing who you are in Jesus Christ, and you start cashing their checks, you know what you do? You go from walking after the flesh and begin to live, begin to walk in after the Spirit. Amen. You know, my friend, that's how what becomes real becomes realized. See, the $10 million was real, but it wasn't realized until the poor man acted on it and believed that he was actually rich. You know, many of us live in spiritual poverty and we're saved on the way to heaven because we have bought into a lie. So which way are you living, friend? Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed?